Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello. You're listening to a very special episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. Um, yeah, we've been working on Chicago Architecture Biennial Programming. Um, Jamie Trecker, our super producer, has just been uh, a, a hero this weekend in getting all of this together for us. And um, joined in the studio right now, uh, Peggy Diemer, um, founder of the Architecture Lobby, amongst other things, and Manuel Schwartzberg, another leader in the lobby. Um, and we kind of have uh, a little bit of radio chaos. So we, we're basically having our Architecture Lobby Members Congress in the co-prosperity sphere right next to the station. If you don't know uh, what the Architecture Lobby is, it's an organization that we talk about on the show a fair amount. Um, that is essentially a labor advocacy group for architects. Um, you know, it's also an activist formation amongst many, many other things. Um, but we'll be rotating in and out several members, so it might be a little bit chaotic, but it's really great to have everyone physically in the same space, and um, we got to take advantage of it to talk about how architecture fits in to all the craziness that's going on in the world um, and what uh, our sort of political um, uh, imperative is in this moment as architects. Um, later on in the show, um, we'll be doing an interview with uh, Nicholas Cordry and Joanna Klappenberg, and they'll be talking about the politics of the Chicago Architecture Biennial itself. So stay tuned for that. But anyway, Peggy, Manuel, how are you guys doing? Good. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you guys on the show. Um, so, you know, we were just having um, a, a meeting about where the architecture lobby um, has come from and what we've been up to for the last couple of years and sort of where we're going next year. That's really tomorrow's conversation. But um, I'm, I'm curious if we could rehash that just a little bit. I mean, I, we talk about the lobby on the show, but give us the a cliff notes of the, the mission, the history what we're trying to do, why we got involved. I know it's a big question. We just talked all morning about it, but... <laughs> Should I take that? Or? Go for it, Okay. Yeah. Um, well, as, as Kiefer was indicating, we are an organization, an activist organization, arguing for architecture labor. I think many people don't know what architecture labor actually is uh, and don't think that, that architects themselves, being a profession or particularly being a creative profession, do labor. But, of course, we all go to work. We all get a paycheck. Um, we all work under certain hours, and um, the profession... Uh, I, I don't think the public generally knows this, but the profession is um, largely very unhappy. Um, we don't have social influence. We don't have political influence. We don't have economic um, um, compensation, uh, horrible labor practices. So the lobby really founded um, itself around, I guess, three three different things to um, educate the public um, through the media and clients and and. Um, other um, publications um, to educate uh, our our own uh, um, professional st um, firms and organizations, so that that we could think more ambitiously and differently, and more fairly and more diversely about about our profession. But also then um, for the laborers themselves, we call them the staff, that they can think differently about their own agency with within a firm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that uh, really it struck me this morning with our conversation was um, how, um, how in a way, the architectural lobby embodies the change we want to see in the world mm -hmm. uh, because it's an organization that is um, very, very diverse 
Yeah, it has people that are uh, located in many different cities across the country. Um, everybody's uh, coming from a very different background. We have uh, students, we have graduates, recent graduates, we have young architects, we have very established professionals, mm -hmm. uh, academics. Um, uh, so th that creates a, a, an environment which is very unique because actually uh, in architecture, like in most other professions, uh, we're seeing increasing specialization. Right. And um, that atomizes people and it prevents um, the possibility of real solidarity and um, building a kind of political uh, power uh, mm -hmm. to change how, how the society uh, is working. So uh, this is our own little, um, in a very small corner of... Uh, of the social spectrum, this is um, what we are trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so seeing people coming from all over the country today from their different perspectives um, to talk together um, is very inspiring. Yeah, and it's it's been you know really rewarding to be a part of the architecture lobby, and I think one of the interesting things is that we we have really substantive debates about how how to move forward, right? And and it's it's a multi tendency organization, and there's something really beautiful about that. And I, I think some of the debates that came up in in our kind of conversation, um, it's you know sort of weird. It's like an internal conversation, then it's weird to kind of turn around and broadcast them on the radio. <laughs> but you know, I I think you know we do have to ask ourselves some some interesting questions about like uh, how architecture has become irrelevant as a, f a political force you know where did when did architects lose their agency and and then who who is going to get it back right and to what ends because um you know obviously if if we're building our political agency just for ourselves then then that's not really something i'm interested in right i think uh, to manuel's point we're, we're talking about um you know getting together a group of people who who see um, workplace fights in architecture as as a, as a really key and integral part to a larger political movement um, and yeah I mean I know Peggy you've been write, writing about this about the relationship of the sort of work um, to you know uh, doing good architecture that serves people I'm curious what you, what you think. Yeah. Well, and I may not be answering that, but but vis-a-vis -vis, um, things that you're both bringing up about whether um, architecture is um, a particular discipline with its own particular problems or whether it's a microcosm of, of larger um, forces, we could call those <laughs> capitalist forces and or, or political forces. Um, and, you know, thinking about that, um, I, I do think it's the case that um, what, what architecture as a field is um, is is representative of other things, and particularly now in this age where um, design thinking is um, put up as as a kind of model for mm -hmm. technical or IT things. And we've been doing design thinking all along, and, and there's a new model for the office, which is called the lab. Well, we've had, had labs in, in many ways. And so um, how we think about our, our work, I think, um, is... Um, important not just internally but also as an example for other things and so the kinds of of policies that we argue for you know fair labor um, diverse workforce um, work label um, work life balance you know all of those things um, are and and creative autonomy are, are things that matter to us but matter to everything but around how we're Organizing, which is a lot of the conversation we've been having in, yeah. in the Congress today, um, I think 
um, we we are trying to model an example of how the government can be or how other organizations can be, and we could call that radical democracy, which is um, really allowing uh, the differences that Manuel is describing that come to the table here to have full expression and not try and synthesize those um, and homogenize certain things, but to allow that to be a form for active debate. So you're always constantly um, re- um, thinking and re-internalizing what is at stake, um, right. and making it making it up as you go, which which I find inspiring to work um, in that context of that. Yeah, yeah, and I I think another interesting question that came up that's related is really I think the architecture lobby has has in the process of doing that changed the location like of of where where we act politically as architects right as opposed to it being in in the the product of our labor it is it is our labor our, our itself that becomes the sort of site site of of, of agency um, which which is really which is really sort of interesting and uh, like you know there's there's lots of uh, sort of Marxists in the lobby even though it's not you know, a Marxist organization that's, that's one tendency among many. Um, but that does seem to be a very sort of Marxist way of thinking, right? That the, the, the labor is the political thing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you guys, what you guys make of this. If I know it's like, that's not really a question. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, uh, it's an important point. And um, I, th I think uh, what's interesting about how we are approaching it is that yeah. obviously it is about labor. But um, as Peggy was mentioning, it has a lot to do with um, um, uh, staging that problem in a particular way, um, in a way that encourages uh, a more of a listening disposition and a more of an open disposition mm -hmm. uh, that accepts the heterogeneity and plurality of society mm -hmm. and, and uh, seeks in a way a, a kind of intersection with other struggles. And that's really, really important, especially right now when yeah. we are living through a um, historical uptick of authoritarian politics. Mm -hmm. uh, really, we're in a, in a moment when there's a, a kind of resurgence of fascism right. throughout the world. And so the answer to that um, could be to pretend that everything is okay mm -hmm. and just continue with business as usual. Could be to um, um, uh, be part of the fascist movement, you know, <laughs> join a right-wing uh, um, um, uh, radical party, or it could be to try and reimagine what does uh, emancipatory politics look like today. Right. And uh, I think that we're not doing that in uh, in a seminar room. We're not doing that in a in an ivory tower of mm -hmm. academia, but we're doing it here, uh, you know, in co-prosperity sphere <laughs> with people from all all different kind of parts of of the world yeah. so uh, that's a really that aspect which has to do with in a, in a sense a kind of appreciation for the politics of affect and um, and for pluralism mm -hmm. but with a very very strong um, let's say progressive politics direction mm -hmm. uh, I think that's what we're trying to do here and it's uh, living through it in the flesh is very important it doesn't right. happen just on paper right also, uh, you know, around um, labor itself as an issue in, in contemporary politics, um, I've become more and more convinced as we see other institutional possibilities failing, um, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the party system, 
um, to in some way combat, you know, Trumpism. Um, well, then we think, well, maybe it won't happen at the national level or the party level. It'll happen at the state level, but what, you know, maybe the states can't do it. But, but I'm more and more convinced that it is actually labor that is going to be the mechanism by which we defeat Trumpism. Um, and you know, the, just this last week, we saw that we um, that Trump's economic plan is to support entrepreneurialism, um, and entrepreneurialism, you know, is 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 a hot topic. But we could really basically see, um, you know, the the emphasis on um, um, individualism and you know, kind of neoliberalism based economy that again is trying to see labor as its. Um, uh, Enemy, or you know, what what needs what needs to be suppressed, and mm-hmm. if that's the case, the discussion of labor will just be, um, and organizational labor will be the place where we make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, one interesting dimension about this conversation is um, coming here together to speak about how how we're doing. No, how mm-hmm. you, how's your life going? <laughs> um, how's work? You know, yeah. uh, are they are you are you doing okay? Do you have a job? Um, do you have healthcare? Um, you know, do you have somebody in the family who's ill? Those kind of questions are really important because. Um, and they are related to obviously how you're making a living. Mm-hmm. So, but they're really important because through those conversations, we're able to, um, in a sense, bypass this kind of authoritarian capitalist uh, system mm-hmm. uh, that Peggy's been mentioning, uh, which denies the reality of those problems as social problems. They are right. only individual problems. So actually, when you come to the table and you, you know, uh, put your guns aside and just talk, um, you realize that um, uh, there's much more of a kind of uh, interesting social conversation that can happen. uh, And that's where the politics is. Uh, So it's it's a little bit uh, of a cliche, but um, connecting the personal to the political or making the personal political uh, hasn't been more important than ever right now. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it strikes me that this this is a sort of, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing about the architecture lobby that, um, you know, we also try to interface with the public, too. And, um, you know, specifically when we're talking about all of these issues and identifying ourselves as labor, I think that might that might confuse a lot of people who are listening in. Right? I thought architects were well to do professionals. And I think, you know, Peggy, as you explained earlier, that's just ki- that's, <laughs> it's kind of a um, not the case, but it, it really does. um open up some interesting avenues for, um, you know, future political movements coming from the world of labor, because what we consider labor now is getting increasingly bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Um, you know, white collar jobs that used to be middle, upper middle class professional jobs are rapidly becoming, you know, proletarian jobs. And, you know, we have to absolutely respect the sort of like differences um, um, that, that still remain in that kind of work um, from other kinds of work. But um, it, it, that, that equivalency seems to open up all new kinds of agency for us, which I think we've been talking about. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about sort of like what, how, how you think the, the lobby might be, you know, setting a template for this kind of work that we're doing, organizing people who are proletarianizing. Maybe proletarianizing isn't the right word. Um, you know, we talk about immaterial labor, too. I think, you know, that's a kind of heady concept. I want to set the table with those things and see what you guys pick up. Well, one, one thing that it makes me think about is um, what we're taught in architecture school, which is about um, your own individual project and your own individual genius and and that really your um, design and formal ability, which comes from your own um, individualism, 
is um, so pervasive uh, in the construction of the of the profession. On on the one hand, certainly conceptually, but on the other hand, we kind of know that it takes a whole group of people to design, produce a building, and and the built environment. And, um, and I think when you look at the reality of it. Uh, the kind of sharing of information is is there, but we don't talk about that. We keep um, wanting to permeate the other myth of of you know the author of it. So, in in some way, ar- architecture as a profession has always been collaborative. We just haven't talked about right. about it. Um, and so, I think part of the conversations that we're having now is is not just to change the profession to work differently, but to recognize that we're inherently collaborative and we should be proud of, of that fact. Um, yeah. And not just collaborative you know, with, within an office and all the things you have to do, but collaborative with other professions that um, we're not higher than um, or um, um, only see as consultants, but, but, but together, whether it's engineers or whether it's software or whether it's fabricators mm-hmm. or um, or even bankers, <laughs> if, if, if we see them creatively as, and on our side or whatever, that we um, uh, collaboration is, is the way to get a better product out there as well as make a better world <laughs> organizationally. Yeah, totally. It's also, I think, um, the aspect of not seeing how architecture is a collaborative effort is also an expression of a kind of deep, deep, deep ideological um, let's say brainwash right that we are all <laughs> we're all uh, uh, implicit in and a part yeah. of uh, that is just you know it's not that anybody's um, um, uh, foolish or anything it's just the way world we live in and it's uh, very difficult to to step outside of that very 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 difficult uh, one of the um, consequences of that is that society and even ourselves do have this very very class-based uh, image of who the architect is mm-hmm. as this kind of gentleman, you know, uh, professional who is kind of above um, the everyday uh, issues of most people and um, the kind of mundane problems uh, of construction um, to be um, um, somehow abstracted from all of that. Right. And that we, an architecture as a, as a discipline has been um, really founded on that mystification, right? Because yeah. actually... Nowadays, most people uh, who enter the profession are not coming from an, uh, an aristocratic background, no. <laughs> but they're very, through their labor and through their, uh, the way that they uh, reproduce the discipline, they, they reproduce those, those uh, ideological mystifications. And so being very honest about where you are and the fact that you are being exploited, like mm-hmm. s- trying to recognize that if you are being exploited, right. seeing it and being um, conscious of the fact that it's not just you. Yeah. Um, you know, that uh, there is an enormous amount of underpaid or um, um, underemployed labor mm-hmm. in architecture. And uh, the fact that a lot of the projects that we do are not conducive to a better society, but in mm-hmm. fact are... Um, widening the class divide and widening geopolitical uh, inequalities um, or why, you know, in, encouraging white supremacy, for example, right sure. now, no? uh, to mention a very present issue. Um, so being able to see that takes a lot of work and mm-hmm. a lot of courage. And um, to me, I think the architecture lobby is a kind of tool yeah. um, for that process. Yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. 
uh, you know, because it's uh, we were we were talking in the last uh, Buildings on Air episode um, with Kate Wagner of McMansionelle about architecture becoming a kind of commodity, um, right? And and we were specifically talking about McMansions out in the suburbs, which are like you know, a very clear cut example of architecture as a commodity, buildings becoming a commodity, um, but. You know, it, it's it's one of the challenges that we face specifically in kind of building this movement is that architects just don't have much power these days, right? Um, you know, most buildings aren't aren't designed by architects, and um, you know the in, the the pressures of commoditization really push out um, architects who might be socially conscious or want to think deeply about anything at all, really, even just making something look nice, let alone you know politics or the social social good and um, um, and and or it, it changes the nature of architectural work itself right and and you become like a, a sort of factory worker producing a commodity so I, I think it, it's 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 interesting when we're faced with that and we're talking about you know sort of building um, up our capacity as architects to fight back against that we also seem to have need to, uh, you know, help architecture as a whole, as an industry, sort of regain its prominence and relevance. And I, I mean, we talked about that in reference to how we communicate with the public and, and express the importance of architecture. Um, but uh, it's a kind of conversation that we've been having in the lobby for a long time. And I, th and I think it's interesting to sort of to, to bring it to air, uh, you know, like, do we need to help the bosses make money in order to demand more money from the bosses, right? I, and 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 I'm not really sure what the answer is to that. Um, but I'm I'm curious curious to hear what you guys think. And and I, I also don't think that anything we say here will be representative of any any concrete lobby position. You know, for for the record, the lobby is more of a place where we have these discussions. I'm happy buildings on air can also be a spot to uh, further them. With just to say, I mean, it, it, it is the case that one of the main things that the lobby promotes is um, that what architects do is not um, make objects. Yeah. Um, and, and as long as we think that we make objects and promote to the world that we make objects, commodification is going to be right right, right after that. How much is, is that commodity worth? And mm -hmm. not only how much is that commodity worth, but how much is design expertise that the architecture brings to that thing, which is very often not, not understood or respected, um, what kind of worth is it? And so if we stop thinking of ourselves as producing objects, um, but actually offering expertise about the built environment mm. and, and um, lasting social good and lasting um, uh, performance in the buildings, um, in that there's an ongoing commitment, and that's what we—the expertise that that we bring—it would be much harder to commodify in the in the way that it is. Mm. Um, just to say, you know, very quickly, I was at a lecture by Lakatan and Vassal, um, and um, uh, they they indicated a project where they had analyzed the public space that they were supposed to do a project in, and they walked away after doing all this analysis and said, "Don't do anything. This public space is great." Mm. And so somebody said, "Well, how are you, how?" how you get paid for that and he said well you know when you go to the doctor and you're feeling bad and and they you know push you and do this and you come in they say you know what go back and rest you're fine um you are happy to pay the doctor for that <laughs> for that advice um so anyway i thought i thought that was interesting yeah. but I, one for me the the key to that question is um not to enter the battle of oh well, how do you get paid more or right, right. you know but but to look underneath that and the problem with um uh, our uh, value being unrecognized is that it's the market who's that's deciding 
how it is that we're being paid and how much and and yeah. what way, and seeing uh, labor as something that can be evaluated outside of a market process. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, uh, labor uh, can also be considered as a social issue, as a sure. social process, um, and can be adjudicated uh, politically, not mm -hmm. through market processes. And so, uh, changing the framework is very very important. In America, it's very very much pretty much impossible yeah. to do that because it's so um let's say constitutional to the country um but you know there has been a, a history of radical movements here too and it's those movements that we have to reclaim and rebuild and strengthen um i think that we're not just selling an expertise but we're selling we should be um c uh, battling or struggling towards changing ways of life yeah I think that's a, that's a really beautiful way to put it. And um, we have just a couple more minutes, and I know we haven't talked about it yet, but um, I wonder if you guys have any sort of inklings about what to expect from the architecture lobby in the coming year. Um, you know, it, it's it's an unfair question because we're dealing with it as an organization tomorrow. But maybe if, if you can uh, try to look in your crystal ball um, and, and see what we might get up to, um, what, what do you guys think? I, I think in some way, this is horrible to say, but um, Trump has offered us a, a um, pretty intense um, opportunity to take a lead in uh, thinking that arch architecture needs to speak more politically and take more more specific political positions. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly those have to do about unjust labor, but, but I think it also has to do around um, immigration, um, infrastructure, um, and the the lobby is primed to really occupy um, that space that is open up for an architectural voice. Yeah, that's um, awesome. something that's been coming up a lot is that uh, we're getting a lot of alliances from in, uh, people in other countries. Mm. Uh, so uh, building a kind of more international movement is something that, that is definitely going to happen over yeah. the next year. Um, people are taking note of what we're doing. Uh, mostly actually outside of the US. Mm. Um, so in a way, strengthening those connections is really, really important and seeing how, how, they, how they're not the product of one country, but they're actually the product of something called capitalism. Yeah, that's very good. And, and um, thanks so much, Peggy and Manuel, for joining us. Um, and coming up after, after a little commercial break here, um, uh, we're going to have a random smattering of Architecture Lobby members. Um, I'm not sure what order they'll be in. I'm not even sure who they are going to be yet. But they will be in here and we'll be talking about Architecture Lobby on the occasion of this uh, Chicago Architecture Biennial and, um, more importantly, the Architecture Lobby Members Congress. Thank you, Kiefer. Thanks. Thanks. Hello. We are back with Buildings on Air and I'm joined by Another couple of Architecture Lobby members, uh, David Hecht and Palmira. How do you pronounce your last name? I'm so sorry. Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, uh, yeah, welcome welcome into the station. Um, as I was telling the listeners, we've been meeting all morning as the Architecture Lobby. We just sort of talked with uh, Manuel and Peggy about the big picture Architecture Lobby stuff. Um, I'm, I'm curious, how, how are you guys feeling about the Architecture Lobby on the heels of, you know, um, an interesting morning of sort of introspection? and uh, about about who we are as an organization and and how we're fighting back and all these other things thanks for having us firstly oh uh, you're, it's, yeah. yes thank I'm you. happy to have you guys on <laughs> so uh, yeah I'm I, I came in here optimistic about uh, the the state of the lobby and what we're aiming at and yeah. I'm only sort of bolstered in that feeling um, I'm always impressed by the sort of 
competence and clarity and creativity of our membership. And today, I think people had a lot of really sharp observations and ideas about how we're working on architecture and trying to improve both our own lot and also our relationship to the public, thinking really incisively about organizational issues, political yeah. sort of demands that we need to live up to. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are starting to establish more clearly. And um, yeah, it's sort of a like a wonderful shock to see the diversity and range of sort of perspectives and professions and people that have come together. We had non-architects in the room. We have educators. We have workers, like solo practitioners. I mean, so the range of who we've been working with is amazing, and I'm pretty excited to see what this year is going to bring. Yeah, same. Palmyra? Yeah, it's it's ironic that we are on radio, but I think it's really important to meet in person. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I really latch on to people's voices and I remember them, but there is nothing like hearing somebody's voice after on the phone yeah. or on a conference call after you've met them in person. So for me, being here around people that I've talked to in the past on the phone or, um, is extremely important. And I think it will actually make our meetings in the future because we are a national organization much easier. Yes. Um, and it also helps. There's an intimacy to the way people express their opinions uh, when they're there physically with you. Yes. Um, and there's, there's, I have more of a sense of the biases and the particular interests and the way people approach specific topics now that I've met them. And of course, there's still a lot more to be done and a lot more time to to be spent together, so I think yeah. I will get to meet a lot more people, yeah. a lot more intimately. And I think it's it's a good thing, you know, to, to, to broadcast that on the radio, especially for you know our, our audience of, of architects who are listening, um, who who maybe understand the lobby as like a kind of big organization that ha- you know sort of has a face a faceless organization like a para AIA that's somehow cooler but similarly <laughs> organized. But like you know, we have we have like almost no funding like you know it's it's a total people-powered organization so i'm really happy to just kind of have this quick hit of people coming in into the studio um to to sort of show like hey it's it's just like we are the architecture lobby and if this is something that you're interested in as an architect or it piques your curiosity as a as, as a non-architect who's listening or um you know you are in a similar situation and you're not an architect and you want to know how to sort of organize or think through some of these issues, I think it's helpful to hear um, hear uh, yeah what what you guys are are, are saying um, and and know that hey it's just us and what what we do so yeah I'm I guess I'm I'm curious about the conversations from the morning um, in terms of what you think some of the like challenges are I guess of organizing um, in in this day and age um, um, a kind of national organization that's that's pretty disparate and David you run communications for the for the lobby so you're, you've sort of are in the belly of the beast and thinking about how you organize a national movement um, in this vein um, mm-hmm. yeah that's, yeah that's a something I've noticed today and that I've noticed throughout the last few months as we've been responding to certain things going on in the world and thinking about like what is the position of a political advocacy group in this current world that we're in, mm. um, especially when we're trying to do something for a specific group of people, the architects. We're trying to do something for the public, but we're also trying to sort of be relevant uh, yeah. right now. And uh, the key thing I've noticed today and that I think is something we're building is this idea of agency. Mm-hmm. and 
everyone who was here today, I think, felt like they were participating in this process. And like you say, it's a member-driven organization, but the barrier to entry is extremely low. Yeah. And the opportunity for action is very large. Right. And I think people are noticing that what they can achieve in this organization is up to them. Mm -hmm. You have a project idea, you have an issue that you think is pressing and burning and causing problems in the world, you bring it up and you will find that other people resonate with it or you'll find that someone's already thought a way through it, but you're going to feel engaged with that issue and have a chance to do something. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's so novel uh, to, you know, have a kind of converse, like have, have that as a, as a sort of ethic and mode of thinking about politics, like in, in architecture, like when you, when you put those words together, you, you sound like a political organizer, right? Or, or something, not like an architect. And, and I, th- and I think that's a sort of interesting effect of, of the lobby. Yeah, and Pamir, I'm cur- I'm curious what you think along these lines too, right? How how are you supposed? Especially, you know, I know being face to face is great, but we can't always do it, and so That's true. yeah, curious curious what you think about some of these challenges. Yeah, following up on what I said earlier, scale is obviously the main issue mm. uh, with any national organization, uh, especially in a country this large. Uh, we did touch upon how other countries, um, how architects in other countries fare and uh, what they do mm-hmm. um, within their own professions and their own in their field. Um, however, the issue of scale, I think, has multiple dimensions. The first one is obviously one that deals with location and being able to communicate on the phone, having conference calls and doing everything that's necessary to have that communication stream open. Um, at the same time, it's an issue of hierarchy mm-hmm. um, because it's it's an issue of scale that's specific to an activist organization, a grassroots organization. So yeah. you could solve some of the problems of scale by having sort of a very rigid structure, but that's not something that's desirable in the context of an organization like ours. Uh, and that's an additional challenge, a welcome one, but an additional one. So we're trying to have a, a structure that's fairly flat that yeah. encourages members, as David was saying, to take up action and do whatever whatever they want to do if they're interested in something um, to, to get started on a project. Yeah. Um, at the same time, um, you need somebody to take responsibility and take the leadership, even if it's only in an organic way. Yeah. Uh, and you need them to also set deadlines and keep the motivation <laughs> up. And that's yeah. the biggest challenge that I yeah. think faces us. Yeah. It sounds like an architect thinking politically. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think... Um, it's it's probably also worth mentioning some of the projects. Like I, there's a value of, of kind of talking about these challenges. I think they're widely applicable to a lot of people thinking about becoming politically engaged right now. But what what are some of the projects that are going on? Um, let's yeah to make it more concrete. <laughs> well, we've we've got a very concrete oriented one in the Not Our Wall project. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, Bad joke, but <laughs> which we need a we need a but um yeah, <laughs> it's resonating here. But um, I mean that's something where, you know, it, it's less dependent on our action now and more on the flipping and flopping that's going on. Right. But and, and of course, it's the not our wall is is, is the architectural lobby um, contribution to the campaign um, against Trump's uh, border wall specifically, but his immigration policies more broadly and the immigration system that produces very extreme spatial effects that architects don't think they're involved in but are implicated in in many different ways in the design of various infrastructures and buildings and systems that you may not at first glance think are tied into a sort of system of oppression or of of an inhumane sort of operation but 
start to be revealed as we look further past just the symbol of the wall and start to think about how there are spatial ramifications to political agendas and yeah yeah, another project that we're working on, and both David and I have been involved with, um, is the JustDesign.us, yeah. um, which I think is one of the more concrete things uh, that we want to have come out of the, the architecture lobby, uh, not just this year, but um, in the years to come. So we're, we're envisioning this as a concrete product that will come out consistently, um, and we're still in the process of rolling it out in its final form. Um, it's There are a lot of rankings, um, and there are tons of rankings out there of right. everything, uh, and there, there are rankings that a bunch of different publications do of architecture firms. This is one that focuses on um, solid labor practices right. um, among firms. And it's a nomination. Uh, we want it to be a positive um, process. So it's a nomination of firms that um, have good labor practices. They offer great benefits uh, where, empl where employees are happy. And this is a sort of a multiple stage process. At first, we have a survey that's um, completed by employees themselves. Mm. Um, and based on that, uh, we come up with some firms that appear to have um, some wonderful practices. And then we sort of verify all the information we have collected with the firms themselves, hopefully coming up with uh, a list of firms that um, other firms can aspire to. Yeah. And this models practice or it's modeled on practices, uh, let's say, in the legal profession where uh, one of as, as Peggy uh, tells the story. She saw the list of the top ten most family-friendly firms posted in a hall at Yale, and these are the firms that receive the most applications out of the Yale Law School, right. like hands down. And I think one of the fundamental ideas of this project that, after today's history lesson from Peggy on the the, the origins of the lobby, we realize this is fundamental to the lobby. Is sort of can we envision a better way of practicing and? Yeah reward or at least, you know, highlight those firms that embody those ideals yeah. and then hopefully support them becoming the new most prominent practices. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting, too, even though we're, you know, a, a, a rather militant organization, you know, I think sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. But, you know, I, I guess all I mean by that is it's not properly militant, but but that we, you know, aren't afraid to make critique, right, and, and, and ruffle feathers. But even in light of that, we um, still sort of, uh, you know, are not into shaming, <laughs> you know. We, we do find it much more valuable to kind of build a wall of fame rather than a wall of shame. And I, and I think that, that says something really nice about this sort of, like, ethic of the group. Um, there are dimensions to shaming yeah. as well. I think it's very difficult to know. There are employers that have great intentions, sure. but because of their scale, and we know how difficult it is for small firms to make right. it, right? Because of their scale, they do the best they can. So you can't necessarily expect. I mean, I think we are trying, and this is a challenging process, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's, a, it's a work in progress, but we are trying to some extent to also filter um, our data yeah. through an understanding of what the challenges are facing a small practice sure. versus a medium practice versus a large practice. Right. Well, at the same time, we don't want to mistake, you know, produce the image that we're waving sort of actual unjust practices. Like we've right. confronted some pretty ugly stuff Absolutely. still going on in architecture. We have met unpaid interns and been shocked at the extent of the yes. the remaining 
uh, problem. So and, and work with work with them. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I, it is it is important to note that there are dimensions to this because you know I think we we pulled no punches when you know uh, Robert Ivy put out his his statement after the election from the AIA, um, which is something that folks um, you know might want to might want to look up. Um, it's an interesting moment in architecture history. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I really appreciate, though, that we are a group that can sort of do all of those things. Um, we've got a couple minutes left here. Um, I know we didn't get through all of the projects. There's actually so many projects going on that it would be um, really hard to talk about all of them in a Buildings on Air segment, which is, is very cool yeah. <laughs> and a sort of indication that, like, things are working. Um, but um, do you guys have an, any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to wrap up with? I One thing I've, I've taken away from today is that there's a lot of um, interest in work the lobby is doing at a student and sort of young mm-hmm. worker practitioner level. And I think we stand to grow a great deal by having people at those levels of the practice yeah. come in and start acting on their own behalf with the group. So as a collective, um, people can really change the nature of architectural practice. Yeah. Um, and I think it's starting earlier and getting people to understand that practice is political and always at some level and your own labor treatment is up to you in a lot of ways, even right. though people think they're powerless. If we act together on these things, like we can actually change these practices. Oh yeah. Yeah, and to, to David's point, I, I already said this in today's sessions. Um, I, I, I'm teaching Studio studio One. Uh, my students are very young, and yet somehow they've already become indoctrinated with this idea that architects need to stay late in studio and work uh, extremely long hours, uh, et cetera. I don't know how they got this idea <laughs> this early on in life. But um, in addition to telling them the usual things, like get some sleep, eat well, be healthy, um, at some point I felt the need to sort of, they, that didn't seem to resonate as much as mm. telling them in the end that um, when you encounter later in life long hours and low wages and all kinds of problems, um, just remember that the value that you assign to your own labor starts yeah. with the work that you do in school and how you value your time and how you structure it yeah. and how you spend it. And these are habits that start, as David said, really early. Yeah. Question capitalism. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> a good place to wrap up. Um, and when we come back, we'll have even more guests from the architecture lobby. I still don't know who they are, but we'll, we'll be surprised. <laughs> Talk to you in a minute. All right, you're back with Buildings on Air, and we have two more architecture lobby members. Gabriel Sierra, A.L. Hugh. What's going on, y'all? And uh, again, just another gigantic shout out to our producer, Jamie Trecker, who is doing uh, the Lord's work in switching out all of these lobby members and getting them set up on the microphone. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, how's it going? How's it going, y'all? Uh, it's going great. Good. An excellent day of, of meetings just about over with. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, it's going great. Um, there was a lot of anticipation building up to this moment, and now it's finally yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice because, uh, you know, with, with both of you, actually, I, th- I feel like we've talked on the phone <laughs> a lot about different uh, goings-on in the architecture lobby, and there's something really nice about being in the same space. And now you guys get to be on the radio show, yeah. in the studio. It's fantastic. And I, I'm excited to talk to both of you. You know, this kind of just worked out this way. We've been grabbing people and pulling them into the studio 
CEO. But um, uh, both both of you have, have uh, AL. You've, you've worked as a union organizer. Yes. Um, and uh, for tell tell us, give us some context. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I started organizing when I was in grad school. I just graduated in May um, with the Graduate Workers of Columbia mm-hmm. um, for workers at Columbia, not just architecture workers, but like TAs and RAs across the campus. Um, and But I was mostly within the architecture department and it was a lot of like just getting the word out and talking to people one-on-one and figuring out what were the problems within the architecture department mm. um, that we could organize around. Because there were a lot of problems with <laughs> working at Columbia. Like everyone, like it was part of our financial aid yeah. and it was great, like a great experience, but it was also like we need to be able to live off of what what like what we're being paid, you know, right. and it was really hard to do that. Yeah. Um, and it, it, was, it wasn't always transparent. Um, and then I was elected to the bargaining committee, but bargaining never really happened. It's still like in the works. Um, and then over the summer, I worked with United Auto Workers. Um, they're the ones who were organizing at uh, GWC, Graduate mm-hmm. Workers of Columbia, yeah. um, and sort of saw the back end of that um, process. And yeah, there's a lot of databases and Excel spreadsheets and a lot of strategy that I had no idea went on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Organizing is boring and it happens a lot <laughs> in Excel. Yeah. 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 So important. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 Gabe, you, you've uh, you know um, since joining the lab, you've really been a sort of champion for thinking about how we bring workers together, um, not necessarily mm-hmm. in in what we might know as a traditional union, but what other forms might sort of supplement that, replace it, add on to it. Um, and yeah, so, yeah. Um, so actually, so when I started um, putting feelers out around Boston for unionization, I was immediately confronted by. A um, couple of people very close to me hmm. um, that live um, at my house, which is an anarchist co-op, um, and so two of my roommates, one past, one future, actually, um, are involved with um, also grad student uni- unionizing at BU and at Harvard. Um, so UAW is working with BU, and Harvard has their own thing going, and we've been meeting with people from UAW and people from both of those schools yeah. to. Um, like, you know, see how it starts out, see how it gets done. Um, and one thing that we've learned is that um, that they're all kind of hybrids. There's no, there's no, you know, by the book, you know, recipe that fits everyone. Right. So they've been encouraging us from the get go to like start writing our own rules and and like de- determine the specificities basically of, right. of, of um, what we need. Um, and so that that's one thing that we've been um, we've been um, trying to establish is, is like what what are the things that we could provide as a union that would be unique to architecture right. and that would make our union succeed in ways that other unions classically fail or, yeah. or like, you know, um, at the UAW meeting that Pe- that um, Peggy and I were at with a couple of their organizers um, in their Cambridge office, um, they s- looked over and said to us, we've never seen a firm owner be happy that they have a union within their ranks. Right. And so we're like, okay, well, maybe we can change that within right. architecture. And right. what what would a union look like that um, a firm would be happy to have within sure. their ranks? Yeah. So I think it's an interesting question. And I and I also think too it's, you know, when when we're talking about the particularities of um, 
not, I mean, it, it applies to architecture, right? Where we have to be organizing students, academics, um, architectural workers, and the, the, the small architecture offices. Um, it's a really weird situation, but, but it's not that different from a lot of other industries. And so I, f I feel like if, if it's a kind of code that we can crack, right, then, then we'll really have gotten something special. And, you know, I think uh, it might very well be that at a large architecture office, um, a sort of more traditional unionizing drive that, you know, entails a collective bargaining agreement um, is absolutely necessary in what we want to do. But it also seems reasonable that that could totally coexist with a sort of um, you know, resource sharing network for, you know, something that's more... Um, of a, a sort of syndicate model or, or any mm -hmm. of these other things that we were sort of um, um, discussing. Which, which is, and I, and I really, I really think too that it's a related question to organizing universities because the, one of the main reasons why the architectural lobby has had the explosive growth it's had is because we have this kind of cadre of people who went through specifically UAW training, UAW organizer training as members of their graduate student unions. So now, now you know, even though architecture is nowhere close to being a traditionally organized profession. Um, all, all these folks who are just going to school to get an education end up coming out being labor militants. Yeah. Yeah. I think jumping off of that, I think you're hitting upon something that's, um, that's really real. It's like the challenge is that they're all different types of firms and different yeah. types of peoples and different types of experiences. And yeah, there is no one union or one formula that is like one size fits all. And it's kind of the process of figuring out like what, works for who it's almost like a site specific like <laughs> type of yeah. design type of thing <laughs> am i speaking our language now <laughs> that's actually a really good metaphor <laughs> yeah um yeah and I, i'm i'm very curious to see how it'll all pan out because inevitably it'll be a sort of like hybrid or coexistence of sort of forms we, we need to draw some really good diagrams yeah, yeah we do <laughs> totally <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, like what what else is kind of what, where do you think um, this sort of energy in the lobby is going to like go in the coming year or so? I know it's I, I asked I asked the same question to the previous group and I was like, it's unfair to, you know, we're going to talk about this tomorrow. We haven't talked about it yet. But <laughs> Crystal Ball, what do you think? Hmm. At least for me, just because like I just graduated and my career is just like starting out. It's kind of like reaching back out to the people that I had gone to school with who mm. were really excited about these issues and being like, hey, we've graduated, yes, but like now we're in it. Like now we <laughs> yeah. have to do something uh, about it. Yeah. yeah, like please follow through. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, the um, the, the thing is twofold. For one, it's to, to make um, the Boston chapter more of an incubator. So pe people that are within schools um, in Boston and Cambridge um, during that time, uh, meet people and start the discussions on these issues and then after they graduate and move to other cities in the U.S. Mm. or abroad, yeah. um, they can um, use the connections of the architecture lobby and get involved in their local groups. Yeah. Um, and secondly, I want to I want um, small firms to become members of the lobby. I want, yeah. I want that to be like an entry point um, for a whole new type of membership, basically. Um, yeah. To have firms want to be a part of the lobby. So, 
Yeah. That's important. I think that's a, a good goal for us, you know? I think so too. Yeah. And, um, I think so too. And I'm, I'm very curious how that will plug into, you know, it's, it's to be honest, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around being a sort of, you know, uh, more dogmatic <laughs> sort of leftist thinker, but I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to sort of have my brain twisted and, and, um, 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 think about, you know, how, 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 um, we can make all of this work. Yeah. And, and, uh, what are you guys excited about for tomorrow's lobby discussions? <laughs> oh my god, I don't, I don't know. Just more, like more concrete <laughs> stuff. Maybe. Yeah, more concrete yeah. stuff. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah, and more like looking into the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And is there is there anything that you'd like to tell uh, maybe our non-architectural <laughs> listeners? I, I know that's sort of like an unfair question. I am jumping around a lot, but like. You know, like, wh- why why should our, our non-architectural audience care about this? We've sort of jumped around on the, this with the previous question, so that's not all on you. With the pre- you know, you're not the first guests, but <laughs> you know, what how what what makes you interested in in both sort of this labor activism and tangent um, and architecture? Um, well, for me, one thing that I think a lot of people can get behind architects and non-architects alike is the boom in construction in their, that they're seeing in their cities. Yeah. And it's kind of nasty corporate architecture. Right. And I think that that's one thing that if there's any sort of parallels with um, ideas of form or the built, you know, the way that the appearance of the built environment with the precepts of architecture lobby, it could be like architecture that doesn't look like it was designed yeah, right. with a spreadsheet, <laughs> you know, yeah. and for a for-profit architecture, yeah. basically. Yeah. So. And if you have, yeah, if you have a different kind of architecture, you get a different kind of building. Yeah. 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 And I guess for me, a lot of it has to do with breaking down that like perception of the architect as like, oh, this like person who right. is an expert and knows everything, <laughs> but it's like, we're also citizens and we're also laborers and we're just like... We're, and we're inhabitants of a city. Lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. care about the way the city functions and, yeah. and looks and and um, behaves. Yeah, and awesome. and there's a lot more that we can do besides, like, stamp drawings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we can what? be your friends. We can be your friends, <laughs> and we will be your friends. Yeah. <laughs> and we're ready to wrap up here, and yeah. we're going to switch on out to our next note. guest. <laughs> yeah, on a friendly note. Yeah. Gabe, <laughs> AL, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, and you're listening to WOPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Um, we have two more wonderful architecture lobby uh, uh, folks. Our last two uh, guests from the architecture lobby before we talk, talk with uh, Nicholas Cordry and Joanna Kloppenberg about the Chicago Architecture Biennial. Um, we have Ashton Ham, Marianella Dupriel. How's it going? It's good. good. How are you? Good. Good. Yeah, we've just been sort of chatting with, with many lobby people, a revolving circuit. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of amazing that we've had so many people in the studio in the last hour. Um, and you know, they're, they're not even, um, you know, 5% of the architecture lobby, right? It's like, you know, we're huge. We're getting to be a huge organization. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so, um, yeah, what did you guys think about the day's proceedings? What, what makes you excited about the architectural lobby and our particular brand of architectural activism? Yeah, I, I think for me, it was really exciting to see um, a lot of people come together after being having worked together on projects and campaigns and maybe um, seeing each other's names um, or talk to each other on a conference call or on a phone call and then coming together um 
for not specifically for a campaign or a project other than the project of continuing to build the organization and continuing to sort of define um, the values of the organization and uh, what it is that we're doing and the work that we're doing. So um, to me, that was really, really exciting. And it's exciting to see um, all of the different voices that we have represented. So we have people who Mm -hmm. are coming straight from uh, practice, others who are um, in um, academia. We have students or recently graduated folks. Um, So it's a really great sort of very fruitful uh, or it's a combination that leads to really fruitful conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just been uh, kind of following on what Marianella said, it's been so interesting to just be physically in the same space as everyone else. And then, um, and not only just participate in this organized conversation, but also like letting these small conversations happen, you know, on the walk to get coffee. And just like, this seems like such a kind of critical moment for the architecture lobby to to have people from all over the nation in one space. Yeah, totally. And and I think it's really interesting, too, um, to talk about the sort of importance of base building, you know, and, and just really like building us up as an organization. Um, and I almost want to back up because I think b- both of you are really well equipped to answer this question about like, why is organizing in this particular way, like getting people together in this particular way important? Right. Like, what does it let us do that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise? Can you say more when you say in this particular way, can you sort of explain what you mean by that? I don't don't ask me. I ask you the question. No, uh-uh. <laughs> that's not that's not fair. Well, I can't answer the question the way you asked it. So. Uh, everyone else was kind enough to put up with my bad questions. And um, I'm glad you're not. Yeah. No, I think I think uh, I, I, what I mean is that. Why, like, why build together, right? Why not do political work in isolation? Why not mm-hmm. do political work through, you know, the design project? What is it about banding together into an organization in the first place that is important? Like, why why are we so happy that so many people are mm. here, I guess, is, is the question. I, yeah, no, go ahead. I think that, um, I, I think particularly in our profession, there's a sense of solidarity or or solitude, sorry. Mm. And I think um, as we're working, you know, alone at our desk at one in the morning, it gets it gets very lonely. And I think to be able to talk about these problems that we're having, um, you know, just sending it to an audience who is responsive and who is also having the same problem. I think it just it makes us feel that there's. Yeah. There's another, you know, and and knowing that there's other people experiencing the same problem makes me feel that much closer to a solution. Right. Yeah, I also think that if we when we think about um organizing within the context of a profession um or within the the context of of um architectural labor, uh it, it comes down to, you know, that there being a lot of power and numbers. Um and that power being built um, not just through the numbers, but also through the fact that we all of our interests and um, individual interests, right, and and uh, working with the architecture lobby and trying to improve the profession or the practice or the um, discipline of architecture, um, all of our individual interests in doing all those things overlap with the interests of the group, um, which are the same and might go beyond um, our own personal interests. And so I think that 
um, that is what is like is super, super valuable. And we have a lot of power when we come together to um, as we fulfill the kind of interests and goals of the organization simultaneously fulfilling the um, individual interests of all of its members. Um, and, and so I think that if that answers your question. I think yeah. it does. Yeah. Yeah. And so where, where do you where do you think this momentum is going to carry the lobby? I think that's the one question that I've sort of asked everyone is like, um, you know, we're going to talk about it tomorrow and we've only got a couple minutes left. But um, if you could look into your crystal ball, you know, what, what do you think the future has in store for um, our, our sort of movement here? I think that um, it seems like the momentum is only gathering, right? Yeah. I think today we heard a little bit of an introduction to the, you know, the history of the lobby, which um, not everyone was very familiar with. And just seeing, you know, at the last retreat that there were conversations about, you know, what is the legal structure of the lobby and that now we've achieved that. Yeah. So now I just have so much more confidence that we're going to just, you know, even in a year from now, just, you know, really capitalize on what we're what we're talking about today mm -hmm. and um, make progress. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have um, specific s sort of hopes in the direction or one of the possible directions that the organization could go in. But I think we're getting to a point where we are uh, so large that um, something I would really like to see happen is to activate all, I think we're at 150 members now, I think to really activate all of them and to be able to to plug them into the, to use sort of larger efforts, uh, whatever sort of ends, ends up coming out of the conversation tomorrow. Um, I think that there is definitely a, a kind of section of lobby that's really interested. And I know Ashton, you're interested in this and um, kind of um, alternative practice or uh uh, sort of building resources and tools that people uh, can use to pursue um, architecture sort of outside of the typical uh, framework and, and sort of like uh, structure in which it's typically pursued. And then I think there's also two um, um, alongside that that kind of like section of the lobby, there's also a section that's really interested in pursuing the question of uh, a union um, or a guild or something like this that would be able to um, Organize architects um, on the basis of, of their 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 status as workers, yeah. um, and so I I would really like to see both of those projects gather steam in the form of people working on them behind them and yeah. um, really come to fruition. Yeah, I think that's a good place for us to have to wrap up. And yeah, I'm really excited for, for the next year in the lobby too. And, um, you know, I think it has good lessons for, for us, everything we're talking about, and for other um, activist organizations and people who are thinking through these issues. And I'm sure um, people out there who are thinking about these issues have some really excellent things to teach us. Um, so um, I'd be very curious uh, to, to hear more from, from y'all. You can get in touch with the show. Um, you know, we're on, we're on Twitter. BLDGS on air, um, buildings on air at Gmail. Um, so if you've got any thoughts, please get in touch. And um, now uh, we're going to come back with an interview with Nicholas Cordry and Joanna Clappenberg about the Chicago Architecture Biennial itself. And uh, yeah, thank you. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. And uh, we're in the studio here with Nicholas Cordry and Joanna Clappenberg. How are you guys doing? Doing well. We're great. Thanks for Yeah. Having I'm uh, super happy to have you guys in the studio for this Chicago Architecture Biennial special episode of Buildings on Air. Um, 
because you guys just did this kind of amazing sort of part expose, part research project, um, uh, complicity, um, compli.city, you can find it online. Um, so before we jump into that conversation though, um, if you guys could just give me the NPR style introduction, <laughs> who are you, what's going on, um, I'll shoot it over to you. All right, um, so I'm Nicholas. I'm a writer and former editor of Arconnect, currently the editor of Arconnect's uh, publication, Ed, and I also go to Columbia. Uh, so we run adjustments agency, which we call an architecture of architecture studio, which means that we investigate the forces, material, uh, social, political, economic, and ecological that determine or circumscribe and delimit the possibilities of architectural practice and thought with the aim of redesigning them. Sweet. And I'm Joanna, I'm from New York, and I'm also a writer. I used to be the editor at Archetizer, or associate editor at Archetizer, and I'm also studying at Columbia. Nick and I are at GSOP getting our master's in, uh, uh, oh my god, I'm forgetting the name of our program. <laughs> uh, critical conceptual curatorial practices in right. some order like that. The CCCP yeah. program. program which <laughs> yeah. is a good, it's yeah. a great name. I almost, I almost went to that program. I ended, I ended up at IIT um, instead, but um, yeah, I'm so happy to have you on the show. This is like the first time I'm, I'm meeting you guys in person, but I feel like we run in the same circles. <laughs> and so it's nice to, uh, um, I don't know, have, have the chance to talk uh, in person. Um, yeah, so, you know, let's jump right into Chicago Biennial stuff. Um, you know, you guys were just at the I think the press panel. Was that what it was? Yeah, the, the opening. Preview? Yeah, the opening. Yeah, so I th there were some rumblings um, at the first Biennial about the way in which the Chicago Biennial was sort of complicit in all kinds of bad things, even as um, it sort of put up this veil of, um, you know, socially minded architecture projects. And I was really happy to see that that sort of thread of, uh, critical inquiry hadn't been lost this year. I was kind of wondering where it would come from. And then sure enough, um, you know, this thing popped up and, and everyone was texting with everyone like, who did this? This is amazing, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, it turned out, um, you know, through architectural lobby networks, um, you know, Nicholas, you were like, oh, that, that was us. Uh, we didn't mean for it to be anonymous. Um, and and so we, we found out that it was you. And so I'm, I'm just tell us what um, complicity is, why you felt compelled to sort of throw down this gauntlet and um, air these concerns. Um, yeah, so obviously, as Nick stated, our, our studio has kind of been looking at the socio-political forces that delimit architecture and its means of production. And we've been sort of focusing on the site of the exhibition for a while since we've been working. And one of the things that we started realizing, which is obviously not a little known fact to most people, is that um, most of these events, biennials, triennials, are you know corporately sponsored. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously a huge proliferation of these events that we're witnessing now. And a lot of that is sort of, we think, revolves around the way that architects have been sort of sidelined in their own industries and are kind of hmm. turning towards exhibition spaces to present more independent research. And especially, as you were saying, like the research that is more like sociopolitically minded. So then we see that there's sort of this conflict between who's sponsoring these events and what people are trying to say. Right. Hmm. So... Uh our, our practice for the last year has been oriented around exhibitions and we're continuing to pursue that as kind of, as Joanna was saying, as the primary means with which this discourse is disseminated. Um, and 
so one aspect of it is to kind of interrogate, to do a kind of essentially institutional critique. Right. Um, and yeah, and then we, we, we accompany that with other platforms that try to create alternatives, which we believe is in, in important as well. Yeah, and it makes sense because, you know, I think there's the sort of rose-colored glasses version of architecture exhibitions, which is that, you know, somehow these things are more politically pure or autonomous, um, and and clearly th they're not, right? They're sort of implicit in the same schemes that, you know, um, developer logics push us towards. Maybe not in, in the same magnitude, um, but I think it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, the, the the website sort of breaks down um, three different, like, uh, I don't know, ways in which the biennial is complicit. Um, sort of first the BP sponsorship, um, then you guys uh, talk about Rahm Emanuel, and then um, it's sort of the theme itself, right? This sort of really strange way of viewing history. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess we can go in that order because um, I, I think the, the problems that you noted with BP are interesting because it, it's not just the, the first thing, which is the sort of environmental catastrophe is that, you know, this kind of extraction empire relies on. It's the, 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 the sort of murdering of trade union activists in Colombia um, and, and, all, and all of these other things. So I'm, I'm curious to hear, hear you guys talk more about sort of BP and how they flow in and out and have been pushed out of cultural institutions. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, BP is for, has a long history, I mean, alongside its long history of colonial uh, kind of colonial violence, they have a long history of using institutions, art institutions and cultural institutions to kind of yeah. mask it, to put on a good face, to front, if you will. And uh, we, uh, so, so with BP, uh, I mean, what we kind of do is we trace, uh, we start with Deepwater Horizon, which is probably the, the, the thing that most people remember about BP or associate with BP. Right. And then we go back uh, and look at how uh, BP was, a, it was originally, uh, it was kind of a, it was a colonial enterprise of the British Empire uh, in Iran. And uh, essentially what happened in the um, early mid-century um, was uh, Iran, the democratically elected leader of Iran, Mossadegh, uh, tried to nationalize the company. And uh, this is, I guess, before that, also, I should say that BP was pretty, pretty gnarly with their uh, labor practices. Mm. But uh, uh, when Mossadegh tried to no nationalize, the CIA joined up with the British uh, government to do their first coup, one of the first of many coups, obviously, um, and overthrow that. And so after that, they replaced him with the Shah. And kind of that history is rather well known that then the Shah was an autocrat, was overthrown interned by the Ayatollah, and now we have the current situation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Right. And then, yeah, and then we get into Colombia, where um, <coughs> BP was uh, uh, essentially, yeah, paid to take out hits on labor, on labor unions and mm -hmm. labor uh, organizers uh, who were working to strike against uh, oil extraction in the way that the BP was kind of an uh, active participant in the, with the Colombian government. Yeah, I think something that's really remarkable about all of this is that we didn't really have to go very far at all to find this information. <laughs> like, it's very, very public. It's very easy yeah. to find. Um, and, you know, it, it's obviously become very clear to us, like with the ways, you know, BP, this is not the only cultural event that BP sponsors. I mean, Art Forum just published a piece about how uh, the painter who won their BP's like portrait prize is donating, donating all of that money to an oil spill relief fund. Oh, so it's, it's definitely... Um, 
there are a lot of ways in which BP tries to like sustain its hegemony by, you know, its uh, cultural production, its stake in cultural production. Right. One thing we were interested in is kind of looking at what we call the real of the architecture that's happening. Mm. And if you, so these biennials uh, tend to often focus, as is kind of like a large part of architectural discourse right now, on uh, responses to climate change, to environmental catastrophe more broadly. Right. And, uh, the, what they're doing essentially is putting on a good face for BP, which if you if you look at kind of the grand scheme of things, who is actually re-engineering the uh, spatial environment, that would be BP. They're, sure. they're redesigning entire ecosystems. They're uh, putting thousands and thousands of people out of work and destroying uh, entire coastlines. Uh, so if you actually look at kind of like on the ground, that's the real of architecture. Right. In our, in our <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it's, you know, it's a... It's, uh, Architects are put in a kind of tight spot, right? Because uh, you know, and 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 also, architects just think tend to think very naively about politics, right? They think if if we can put out this you know very vision of sustainability, then somehow some way it will sort of catch on, or you know, just like the we we tend to believe in in the impact of the idea to a, a degree that is. Um, kind of unbelievable, especially when you compare it to this sort of this sort of real <laughs> that's much more real. And um, yeah, it's 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 BP gets easy good advertising from from this. Um, and you know, it's telling that it was only shortly after Deepwater Horizon that they sponsored the first run of the biennial. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the, you also mentioned that activists had um, have been pushing back on this in sort of cultural spheres. Um, you know, briefly, you sort of mentioned the example of the Tate um, um, in the UK as, as a, a cultural institution that just rejected sort of BP's patronage, um, which I, I'm, I'm curious to how they how they did that. It was kind of a footnote in the piece, so I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have the details or not, but it's interesting. I mean, it was a pretty big campaign by environmental activists. Uh, uh, I mean, so I think if you look at the art world, there's a kind of a stronger history of institutional critique and uh. are pushing back against uh, corporate funding of institutions. Mm. In architecture, for whatever reason, that's missing. Um, and I think part of that comes from the fact that there's an art economy that is independent of corporate sponsorship, to a degree. I mean, it's a right. very insidious economy. It's a very insidious market that, um, you know, it's basically a money laundering scheme. But uh, with architecture, all these research practices are very precarious. And so that's something that we mm -hmm. want to kind of underscore is that we don't necessarily fault the individual practices for sure. having to rely on these institutions to support their work. I mean, they need to do their work and often the work is great. Um, there just isn't an alternative. There's no market to support them. There's either this or they're kind of precarious adjunct professors. Right. Um, and the institutional funding from schools is uh, kind of uh, unstable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so another thing that I was, what I was going to say earlier <laughs> was that uh, I think that it's important to note that it, if these kind of ecological critiques or these, uh, these designs that are informed by sustainable discourse or whatever were actually a real threat, then BP wouldn't sponsor them. Right. Right. Yeah. The old uh, um, um, uh, Red Emma thing about if, if, uh, if voting was uh, uh, dangerous, they would they would make it illegal. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that leads us nicely into the sort of next object of critique um, uh, that that the project raises, which is Rahm Emanuel, um, and you know Rahm Emanuel being a kind of incredibly unpopular politician in Chicago. Um, you know, there's a lot of good things he's done 
through for the city, but but not really as an individual, right? Like it's interesting that Rahm Emanuel has kind of become this like institution, and I I think um, the, po- the it seems to me anyway that the politics, the city politics that are happening right now, gearing up for the mayor's race in a couple years. Um, Emmanuel has really felt the leftward pressure that's been building in the city. Um, and you kind of mentioned sort of Ron Emanuel's very uh, dubious past, I guess we could say. Um, I think especially I, I was I didn't realize that when he worked for Bill Clinton, he was advocating to out Republican the Republicans on immigration, which is, you know, um, a huge contrast to what he's doing today. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, amping up sanctuary cities and everything else. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I don't care if he has no principles um, as long as he can be pressured by left wing activists and he sees that he should be taking on these left wing causes. But I think it's interesting how the biennial um, is or is not a sort of forum for pushing him uh, in, in, in progressive ways. Um, or if it's just sort of another, look at me, I'm bringing tourism dollars here. It's good. Um, yeah, cur- curious about what you think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there definitely is a thread of, of civic engagement that runs through the city's sort of like messaging about the Chicago biennial. But for the most part, what Rom talks about um, when promoting the biennial is um, elevating Chicago on a global scale for its history as, you know, one of the, the truly like American city and having this legacy of, of American architecture. Right. Um, and so it, it, it always seems to me that kind of, yeah, what you said, I think the most important thing for him um, is to sort of uh, turn Chicago out to the world as like this sort of image yeah. as a great, you know, great stage for cultural production. Um, and it seems that, um, a lot of the other interventions that are, are looking towards civic engagement out of the biennial are more of an afterthought. Like, I think they even run out of money two years ago for the lakefront kiosks that they were they supposed did. to build. Yes. So <laughs> those, thing, those things that they promised that um, were only kind of like a speculative phase at that point, like never really seemed uh, to come to fruition. But the biennial is happening again, and it's putting on this great face right. for Chicago. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I remember Ram, uh, you know, building up Chicago architecture at a, a, a speech he gave at IIT, and he was talking about how um, this is a great architectural city. It's the only city in the world where um, if you ask a cab driver who the architect was of a building, they'll know. And if that's not true, um, I'll buy you a drink. So I, I tried this. Ram Emanuel owes me a drink. <laughs> 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 But yeah, it's it's funny the way that architecture these uh, just becomes a kind of like marketing exercise uh, in this day and age. It's it's um, it's it's troubling to say the least, uh, and and it's it is it's hard it's hard to see a way out, you know. And that's kind of what we're all, we're always talking about on on the show. Um, and I, I maybe to segue away from Rom into the make new history thing. Uh, you know, it's it's almost the the invocation of the theme, right? Is like, I want to make new history, a new history of us being able to figure out a way out of this, you know, rock in a hard place of like, you know, do I be, enter into this thing and and have to do um, work um, in this kind of scheme that has all of these issues because I, I don't have a way to make money or, or get my ideas out there otherwise. Um, it's, it's, it's really a challenge for, for um, especially young architects, I think, to take on. Um, so make new history. 
what's going on? Like, let's, how, how do we, how should we think about this? It's quite a confusing text, in our opinion. We had, like, a very interesting tr- time trying to parse through it. Like, yeah. um, I think the, the annotation style that we chose kind of draws uh, the contradictions out of, of the statement. I mean, I think the first thing we sort of took issue to is the treating history almost like the static object, which yeah. it doesn't really make sense. And at some points it does advocate for, um, you know, making light of history's unheard voices. But sure. at the same time, it also suggests that um, we shouldn't look at history as this sort of oppressive um I guess thing that that haunts over us, um, which I think is maybe kind of a, a pri- like a privileged understanding of history. And sure. That, um, yeah. There is a lot, especially in these unheard voices, that you know suggest the ways that people are really still haunted by by history and and how what kind of uh, state it's left us in today. Um, and so I think we just sort of take issue with this overgeneralizing about um, the the wealth of. Inf- uh, inspiration that can be found within this sort of static understanding of history. Yeah, I guess another thing that uh, kind of interests us is uh, once again going back to this idea of like a reel of architecture. What's actually going on, and what does the discourse do? And and I think one view you can take is that the discourse uh, kind of enables uh, the same the status quo to keep going on. So it's like by taking on a new like Deleuze in the 90s or taking on uh, Chantal Mouffe now or whatever whatever's hip and trendy and right now it seems like a kind of a revisionist history mm. um, you kind of just allow the same actual reality you're not questioning what's actually going on in terms of architecture which is that it's kind of just a tool of finance um, right and I think that make new history is like a, a really so, like extremely kind of encapsulates that reformist radical uh, rather than revolutionary radical attitude um it's really just about recycling and keeping things going um <laughs> and and then of course yeah as joanna was saying it's like they have this stable idea of history and it yeah they're they're questioning the legacy of modernism in this very kind of strange open like i mean modern is there's many modernisms uh and and the they kind of act like modernism shrugged off history when, of course, the Bauhaus was very much responding, for example, to historical injustices. Right. Um, yeah, and it seems like in that way, in that same vein, they're also kind of like accusing society at, at present for like living. They, they say in the text, like, you know, we're distracted by the state of eternal presentness at the yeah, moment, which historical to, amnesia. to me could seem like it seems so far from the truth of what we're witnessing. Like we have obviously people trying to tear down, you know, Confederate statues right. in the South, like th- we're very much understanding and tracing like how this, yeah, like I said earlier, this history haunts us today. And um, I think it's a sort of short sighted like attack on the way that, that people actually are really like on the ground trying to like push back against this legacy that still oppresses people. Yeah. Honestly, I think the theme is kind of just like a, a post-rational defense for just choosing the kind of like formalist, people that they like which are people <laughs> who are doing like neopomo i mean we have yet to see the exhibition so yeah i mean we're gonna go in with an open mind yeah. we are critics and we're gonna go and review it um but the discourse surrounding it is uh disappointing yeah i will say also for all the criticism of modernism in the text there are like at least four projects looking at Mies um at least today <laughs> at least. So that's what we saw so you know he still has a, a hold on us yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No. I mean, we love Mies. But yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> as, as someone who teaches Mies at IIT, but from a weird and lefty perspective, I, I, I will look at those projects um, also with a great degree of open-mindedness, but also criticality. <laughs> I can't wait to see those. Yeah, and I'm I'm very curious too. You know, um, what what the exhibit exhibition's actually going to be. You know, I, I hear there's some things about um, the sort of Tribune Tower competition, which for for listeners who don't know, um, you know, is kind of this remarkable moment in architecture history where you have. Um, pretty much every architect uh, in in the world who was significant in any way and many who weren't also submitting drawings to uh, for, for the Tribune Tower um, you know the gothic thing that we know and love in the city um, and so you have all these totally wild and different designs that were all sort of rendered in the same way so it's like this really beautiful case study actually of like what all of these different forces and tensions were at that historical moment um, Arguably, they picked one of the worst entries, <laughs> like you know, in this in this thing. But but that is you know, for for making new history, they do seem to be sort of fetishizing Chicago architecture history a lot. Um, and 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 I think they do have some folks who are making new Tribune Tower entries or something to this effect. So I guess they are making new history in a weird sort of way. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned also a word to you're talking about formalism and sort of um, neo pomo and these sorts of things. Um, I think our architecture audience will be familiar with those sort of terms and how that plugs into the moment. But one of the things I love about this show is that we cut across um, a wide a wide public audience and the architecture theory nerds. Um, so curious if you can just talk more about that sort of present moment and what sort of implications it has. You think or, or why why these things are in vogue right now that's a sort of really big unfair question like you could write a dissertation on that topic and i'm sure people are and, and yeah. here i am springing it on you um live on the radio um but. no yeah i think it, it's it is a massive conversation and I, I don't know if we're necessarily the right people to ask about it because we kind of we are not formalists but um i think that from our position we see a kind of i don't know a, we're in this period of kind of a radical reactionary politics. We're in this period of like massive change where we have, we have, we're faced with kind of impending climate change. We're faced with rising neo-fascist movements. Um, there's a lot happening. The kind of future is haunting us. Um, and I think that there might be a kind of uh, a reaction to that that is to look back. And uh, so POMO, right? So postmodernism was a reaction to modernism, obviously. And it was a kind of a, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to it and to blur over all of them <laughs> and, and, and say that it was a kind of, there's a lot, it was kind of a return to formalism. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm doing a really sketchy history here, but uh, I think that there's maybe a, I don't know, in some ways I think it's just kind of an aesthetic return. There's there's an aspect of architecture that we talk about sometimes where it just kind of goes, it's like a ping pong back and forth. Yeah. Um, where you have like, you have, you can see that really a lot in the Venice Biennale where you have uh, like a, a kind of formalist biennial and then you have a functionalist one, a functionalist one. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that's one way of reading it is that it's kind of just a response. And then another one would be that maybe it's kind of a running away from the impending future. 
I see. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Running away from the impending future. Ooh, that's quite... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. these, these issues are so, like, all-encompassing and systemic. Yeah. When we talk about architecture's, like, sociopolitical or functionalist responsibility, like, I, I can imagine that it seems once you start to kind of, you know, uh, like, breaking into that, what that yeah. responsibility means, like, what it would mean for the, prof- the profession, it... it implies this much larger structural change that would need to happen. And I think that is obviously really daunting. And I think that's definitely something that Nicholas and I are trying to grapple with currently um, with the project um, and trying to find ways of of not running away from that. Right. um, Even in, in small scale ways, thinking about how we can experiment with new platforms that might sort of either subtly or or more drastically shift the conditions in which we can work. Sure. Um, but it's obviously not a simple answer and one that we don't claim <laughs> to have right. an answer to. Yeah, and that goes back to kind of a point that we were making earlier, is that there's no outside of complicity within the larger sure. political economy that we exist in. Um, and, 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 I mean, here we are as journalists, uh, right. like, going to the biennial. Um, and, and, and that we don't really advocate for, like, a kind of consumer politics of boycotting or... Sure. Um, I mean, I think that if you want to do that, that's, you know, valuable. But once again, people are precarious and they need money and they need to have their research funded. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that the kind of what it means to face head on the systemat- systemic uh, issues of architecture is to also face head on the systemic issues of capitalism. Right. Um, and <laughs> that's a big task but we're trying to do it in small ways to tweak things i mean we call ourselves adjustments agency and so we're interested in (laughs) adjustments adjustments, yeah yeah. that's really poetic (laughs) and there's so much ingenuity to be found in these um exhibitions these biennials like you can't discount that at all they're brilliant people working in this field and i think what we're trying to do is yeah to see how maybe we can harness that ingenuity of of thinking about architectures and metastructures and how they could change. I really share that position in analysis. And I think what's nice about it is that it, it cuts away from the kind of idea that like, oh man, well, there's, we can't really do anything about it, but there's all of these problems. And unless you're in a position to sort of remove yourself, um, you know, you, 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 you just, you, you end up tying yourself in a knot that, that compels you towards the center instead of being like, no, there are all these forces at play and a lot of them are really negative and like, ha- and, and you have to sort of eat, eat the whale, right? Um, and I think that's part of the mission of the architecture lobby, right, is that there's no sort of short cuts here we got to like start the work of organizing and that we can look at leftist struggle more broadly to kind of equip ourselves with the tools and also join that struggle in a a meaningful way and i think that that's one part of at least the architecture's lobby architecture lobby's mission that i think plugs in really well to to all the things that you're you're laying out um because i think it is it's really easy for people to say like oh if it's so bad then why why don't you you know do it and i and (laughs) I, I always think of this joke because I think it's really similar to the sort of like, oh, if you hate America so much, why don't you leave it? And I, I forget who the comedian is. Um, I wish I always like to give credit on the air, but there's a famous joke. It's um, 
if uh, the reason why I don't leave America is because I don't want to be subjected to its foreign policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think it's sort of the same thing with with this biennial, right? It's like uh, if the biennial's so bad, then like why don't why don't you not participate? And it's like because I I don't want to be you know sub- I can't be subjected to um, you know being in the sort of like shadows of of architecture, right? I gotta I gotta I gotta make a living, and part of that means like you know building up a, a, a sort of like position and notoriety in, in a way that I only can through doing biennials and, and exhibitions and things like it. Yeah, it's like collective refusal or none at all. Right. Yeah. Again, that's very, yeah, very good. <laughs> very pithy. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I'm also curious, this, this idea of the architectural real, I think is really compelling too, um, because I, I think you can talk about sort sort of how we build a progressive architectural real um, and I'm curious if you've given any thought thought to that or, or how, how you how you make shift the real um, in in a way that's not just a, a sort of oppressive thing but something that can can be pushed back so yeah I guess that leads into our uh, other two projects we have um, they're all kind of like a we have tidy names for them. So yeah. it's complicity, uh, domesticity, and specificity. Huh. And uh, they all are dot cities. <laughs> not on a domain splurge. Um, and so once again, I, I would call these tweaks. They're adjustments. They're not like these grand realignments of the discipline. Um, but so domesticity will be a store, uh, an architecture store. We're trying to sell architecture, essentially. We're trying to create a microeconomy to support these research practices that we believe in. Um, and, and, and so what that will mean is there's all these research practices out there that uh, they're not building buildings, but they're still designing. And these objects that they make tend to encapsulate their research practices in really interesting ways. Um, and so in a way, it'll be like a design store, but rather than just like nice furniture, and sometimes it will be nice furniture, um, it yeah. will be uh, stuff that's embedded in research. So in a way, you're, you're actively supporting a research practice. You're also getting this like really interesting thing. Some of it's really weird. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's domesticity. And then specificity, the other project is going to be sort of a, a, a collective platform to promote, engineer, support uh, self-initiated both research and building projects. It'll be run on a... The blo- blockchain platform, which is something we've kind mm. of experimented with before, but we're going to try and dig a little deeper into wrapping our heads around that and making it work. Um, and just, you know, I, I think one of the things that's really exciting about this community that we've really felt so far is that it really has such a collaborative spirit already. Yeah. Um, we find that there's so much excitement about new ideas and this incredible coming together around trying to make things work, trying to make changes. Um, and so we've already like amassed a great network of people that we'd love to try and experiment this with and um, bringing people who are doing research in the ecological realm, finance, political, and sort of bringing them together and really seeing the, the deep like threads of accordance that exist within that right. research. So I think specificity will be a place uh, for that to live and really grow and to nurture that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, the idea is to collectively own the means of our own cultural production. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, which is all, always challenging, um, and I, I really can appreciate that. And and removing um, uh, cultural production from the sort of um, adjunct professor sphere um, that you know we we kind of have to exist in um, sometimes. And also, like to say that. 
it's okay. Like, it's not a bad thing to want to make money off of the things right. you produce, like, which is this weird sort of paradox sometimes and that, like, money is kind of a dirty word, like, in the sphere of cultural sure. production. But, like, you know, we have to find ways to sustain ourselves and sustain right. our practices. So I think that's really important. Right. Yeah. There's no outside. Um, there's no outside of capitalism. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then with uh, complicity, we're uh, moving on next to we, we want to dig deeper. So as we were saying, complicity right now is very much like kind of a surface. It's just like we're collating stuff from the sure. web. Um, but we want to dig deeper into this relationship. We think it's interesting. I mean, I think there's parallels between the rise of corporate sponsorship of these biennials and kind of like neoliberal development. What, what, what's kind of the right. trajectory of like since, I mean, these biennials emerged in the 70s. Right. Which is kind of the uh, onset of yeah. neoliberalism. Uh, and so we're going to pursue Venice. And uh, that's one thing that we're, we're really interested in what the American Pavilion will be this year because yeah. we are big fans of... Uh, of Anne and Mimi and Neil. Friends um, of the show. Yeah, I think they're, if they're, <laughs> yeah. they're trying to tackle citizenship today, and I think that if anyone's equipped to do that, it's them. Absolutely. Um, but then we want to put them on the spot and say that they're using money, they're funded by the State Department, which right. is, of course, uh, the main uh, instigator of overthrowing governments in Chile, in Iran. I mean, right. it, it is kind of the arm of American imperialism imperialism abroad it is an agent of de-citizenizing it's a de-citizenship it's denationalizing it's right uh turns people stateless and uh so we want to know how they're going to grapple with that and i think that they can and yeah if anyone's equipped to if anyone that. i totally agree and i'm i'm very curious to uh keep tabs on what they're doing and i'm fortunate enough to share studio space with Anne. so <laughs> <laughs> great <laughs> so you know i've got to keep keep the secrets off the air maybe but um i will definitely have a um uh maybe u.s pavilion preview um on buildings on air um which i think will be very exciting so um i haven't gotten everyone to agree to that um, but I, I hope that if uh, those folks are listening, um, they'll, they'll be amenable to coming on air and talking about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, producer Jamie um, just uh, informed me that the comedian is, of course, the great Bobcat Goldwaith. How could I forget? Um, so that's where the joke about uh, being subjected to U.S. foreign policy comes from. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Um, yeah, so... Um, it's nice to hear all of these things about kind of like what's next. And I'm also curious about what's next for Chicago Architecture Biennial, um, especially if we're talking about, um, you know, sort of making adjustments. It's, it's kind of great to keep, uh, you know, feet to the fire with complicity. And I think really it, it sort of um, keeps uh, momentum alive for building a pushback, um, you know, to sort of adjust uh, the biennial um, in 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 2019 right yeah 2019 mm -hmm. so uh yeah cur curious what your thoughts are there hmm. that's a good question that's a good question um yeah i mean i i would like to think that it's possible to put on a big cultural exhibition without having to rely on money from bp um but then there's also i think a question of what is the function of these major city-specific biennials right. and exhibitions. I mean, is it to increase the awareness of architecture among, uh, like, kind of the non-architectural population, everyone else? Mm -hmm. um, or is it to sip champagne with your friends? Um, which, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a role for that. There's a time for that. But um, 
yeah, I guess it, what we're interested in kind of pursuing, and this is like another next step, is what what is the role of these big biennials? What, mm. Do they do they merit existence? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's an open question for us, I think. Especially in Chicago Biennial, there's such this conflation with architecture as art, and it seems like um, architecture is sort of like objectified in this way, or it's trying to find its acceptance in, in this art realm. Right. Um, and in the way that like we sort of talked about earlier, that it's being kind of like hurled as a, or harnessed as a, a platform for, you know, cult- cultural production for Chicago to um, wear um, valiantly. And, you know, I think that if there's a way, I, I, I'm not entirely sure how we would do this, but I think we just want to like keep pushing this idea about the real of architecture, like really yeah. what is at stake with how we talk about architecture mm-hmm. and what kind of new discourse we create. Um, and I think if we can sort of, by continuing to talk about these and offer our adjustments, that maybe there's a way that grappling with these larger issues, the larger responsibility of the industry um, maybe won't be so scary. And there's a way that we can push back against this pendulum swing of uh, thematic inquiry in these events. And and maybe there's a way we can kind of keep on course Mm -hmm. and thinking about how architecture is going to respond to like urgent sociopolitical issues. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that the Biennials did was they created an international culture or a global culture, perhaps is the better word, of architecture, Mm -hmm. um, which is great. I think that there's been so much that was born out of that. Um, We, our community, what we consider our community is incredibly international. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like we collaborate with people from London and Italy and all these places, uh, Chile and stuff. Um, And... uh, but now I think we're at this point where I don't know if we need to have these big things to gather everyone because we have the internet. We have these right. means of communication that yeah. can kind of replace them. And yeah, I don't know if we need to have this like huge uh, extravaganza every like three months. <laughs> maybe maybe we just do like every four years, every five years, we do like a, a kind of like a documentary model or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is. Uh, so once again, it's... A, it, Complicity is a critique, um, and we're offering alternatives through these other platforms, but they're not alternatives to the biennial format necessarily. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense, and that's I think a helpful clarification. I, yeah, yeah, there 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 really are no shortcuts, right? I mean, I think um, it would be very interesting to see what the future of the biennial holds, um, sort of without Rahm Emanuel in office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I certainly have a sort of like fantasy of, of all of these things becoming sort of nationalized in some way. I think, you know, if a city really does prioritize it and see it as a, as a, a value in any way, touristically, culturally, what have like they, 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 you know, the fact that they're getting corporate sponsors to, um, um, mitigate the costs and, and not put the burden on taxpayers is is really great when you consider the like differential tax burdens um, between the poor and the rich um, and if you know we start taxing the wealthy then like mm-hmm. yeah like by all means like let's nationalize these things you mm-hmm. know because it puts that that money um, that the, the haves have right like uh, into the public coffers in a way that sort of removes um, some of the sort of prob- problematics that accompany it 
So that's, that might be one thing, um, you know, if we really value this to nationalize it. Um, but, you yeah. know, it does open up other issues in this contemporary context and economy. I also think you said something really sort of like interesting about like the sort of thematic inquiry. And it also strikes me that like if all these biennials ever are thematic inquiries, it's the, the inquiry is going to be limited inherently. Right. And um, I, it just makes me think what other kinds of inquiry a biennial might be capable of, right? I think Rem Kulas, with his Elements show for Venice, sort of hedged close to the, something like that, where it's like, you know, you could have, like, something that was based, like, economic inquiry somehow. You know, maybe that's just as thematic uh, or, or discursive as anything, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something that we've tried to look at also and how you can sort of mobilize the architecture exhibition and sort yeah. of move it out of this representational realm that it sort of exists mainly in now. And I think that's one of the ways that we were sort of thinking about using blockchain beginning and, and sort of how do we create an economy surrounding the um, the coming together of different architectural ideas and then how so maybe how they can actually be mobilized or empowered to actually produce projects like to move beyond the speculative realm um, mm-hmm. how how can the exhibition space actually empower architects to sort of yeah move and actualize these ideas in a real way so it's definitely something that, that we've been thinking about yeah we're interested also in the idea that this is comes from our larger inquiry into exhibitions, but exhibitions take place in space, and architects are ostensibly architects of space. In case. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think so. Right, <laughs> uh, we deal with the spatial realm, and um, it seems silly to, to kind of rely on this representational model. I mean, why can't if it takes place in place? Why can't we <laughs> takes place in place? Why can't we uh, make architecture happen? Why can't it be sites of actual architectural practice, um, which is one of our interests for sure. And then also, uh, going back to this pendulum swing, this kind of thematic thing, I think the the last Venice Biennale was an interesting example of kind of some of the issues at stake where you have Alejandro Aravena tried to essentially politicize or ostensibly politicize the Biennial. Right. Um, and uh, meanwhile, that was funded by Japanese tobacco and Rolex. Um, yeah. And... Uh, it's interestingly called reporting from the front, and I think there's another way of looking at front uh, that is fronting. Um, that there is a, <laughs> an establishment of a of a fronting, and so it's like sure. by having this kind of like this kind of like humanitarian politics, this kind of like very just uh, singular notion of what it means for architecture to be political. You're, you're rather than expanding the discourse, you're really limiting it. Yeah, um, and yeah, and another thing with this idea of like the front is that the front also like implies that you're gathering sort of strategies and tactics from like you know uh, conflicts um, or practices elsewhere but that like the biennial or the biennale is like this neutral ground where they can sort of come together and like what we also want to say especially as Aravena said in his statement that architects need to uh, respond to more than one dimension at a time like we have to understand that the exhibition space is also like a front. Right. Like it doesn't exist in like outside of yeah. these things. Well, we are out of time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you guys. I'm so so happy to finally meet you in person, and I can't wait to hang out opening weekend. If nothing else, the biennial has done that for us, which I'm very <laughs> grateful for. Likewise. Yeah, and I, I also look forward to um, operating uh, with and alongside you on, on the sort of left front of architecture, <laughs> if you will. Um, thanks again, Nick Cordry, Joanna Clavenberg. You've been listening to Buildings on Air. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. 
This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.